Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. This episode of Civics 101 is going to be a little bit different today in that it is not really an episode of Civics 101. It is an excerpt from a conversation that I had live for a program called Writers on a New England Stage. I spoke with Huma Abedin, longtime aide and top advisor to Hillary Clinton. And as such, many of the views that Huma expresses are reflective of someone who very much believes in a politician's politics. None of these editorial views that Huma expresses over the course of this conversation are reflective of the views of Civics 101. They are the views of an operative who worked behind the scenes in a very public and very political space. So if you want to know a little bit about what that's actually like, listen on. You're listening to Civics 101. I'm Hannah McCarthy. I had the great pleasure in September of 2022 of hosting writers on a New England stage at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. This episode is an excerpt of a conversation I had with Huma Abedin, longtime aide and advisor to Hillary Clinton, about Huma's book, Both And. Huma gave us a peek into the life of an indispensable advisor of a prominent politician, including stories from the campaign trail, how much time and devotion it really takes, and how her life growing up in Saudi Arabia granted her a unique perspective in her role. So here's Huma Abedin for Writers on a New England Stage. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us here tonight. It is a pleasure and privilege to be here. And thank you so much, Huma Abedin, for joining us tonight. I am so glad that you are here. Now, first things first, you know, I host a show called Civics 101. I always try to get out the question right off the bat of what someone does for work. Now, you spent so much of your career in this all-consuming public service job. What are you doing right now? Well, I'm having a really good time. Uh, let me start with that. Um, first of all, I, I, I'm having definitely an emotional moment being here because um, for those of you who know who I am or know something about my life, I've been in politics for the last decade, 25 years, 26 in September. And when the gentleman picked me up at the airport in Boston, he's like, have you been to New Hampshire before? And I almost... <laughs> That I think I've spent more time in New Hampshire than I have in Kalamazoo, Michigan, where I was born. Definitely have, by the way. Um, aside from being here with you, I'm able to uh, find a little more rebalance in my life. I'm a mom of a 10-year-old uh, going on 17-year-old. 
little boy. It goes by very quickly. Um, we just uh, uh, optioned the book uh, to be made into a television series. So Frida Pinto is making it into wow. a show. Um, and I'm, I'm actually flying to Los Angeles tomorrow and um, for a few other things. But um, so I'm very excited about that sort of turning because I, I know a lot of people. I used to love to read when I was little. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but I know a lot of people won't read the book and might watch it uh, on the screen. So I'm excited about that. And I'm working on this production company um, with Hillary and Chelsea. Uh, we just uh, had two projects. We have lots of projects going on, but this has really become a new passion project. Um, and so one is called Gutsy, and it's on uh, Apple TV+. Plus. Some of you may have already watched it, but it's, it's, it was based on a book that Hillary and Chelsea wrote, and I was one of the producers uh, for this show. And really, for me, this notion of shifting from politics and public service um, after the you know 2016 election, kind of this forced kind of shift to sort of reimagine what you're going to do when you grow up. At least that's what I've had to do, and so it's shifting a little bit to storytelling and 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 really enjoying it and and figuring out you know what else I want to do in my life. And I'm lucky to have a lot of opportunities. Now, one of my favorite parts of this whole book is the beginning, which I actually thought was all too brief, a description of your childhood. Mm -hmm. And as you said, you grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan. You were born there. And then um, shortly thereafter, you were transplanted to Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. And I, I was reading through your book, and at a moment, I put it down, and I murmured to myself, this woman comes from remarkable people. Um, for those in the audience who perhaps have not read your book or don't know your story, who are your parents? I'm a product of two immigrants, an Indian father, a Pakistani mother, and for us, in, for them, really, education was a religion. Um, they uh, were Fulbright scholars, and they came to the United States in the 60s, and they met at the University of Pennsylvania. They were both meant to go back to their home countries to marry people they were betrothed to, but they fell in love, and they got married, and they um, moved uh, my father was a political scientist. My mother uh, is a sociologist. And they said, we'll move where we both can get jobs. So we um, moved to Michigan, which is um, where I was born. And when I was two, and this is one of the first lines that I wrote in the book when I sat to write, when I was two, my father was diagnosed with renal failure. And um, in 1977 in Kalamazoo, Michigan, essentially the doctor said to him, you should, you know, you probably have five to ten years uh, so you should get your affairs in order. Um, and I think about it, and my father was my age when, um, you know, now, my age now, when he was given this diagnosis. And it's one of the first, it was the first line I wrote when I sat down to write the book, which is my father was told he was dying. And so he went out and he lived. And um, two months later, we moved to Saudi Arabia for a one-year sabbatical. And we just embarked on this great adventure, Hannah. I mean, it was this, my parents were so curious about, you know, one of the things they really wanted us to, number one, even though my father always said, you know, your eyes are at the front of your head for a reason, is to look forward. He really wanted us to learn history and learn about other cultures and places and spaces. It's why the book is called Both And. I mean, this notion of you can be both and. My parents came from two countries that were at war, and India and Pakistan. They couldn't go back and live there, which is why they got asylum in this country. But um, I feel like that curiosity, that sense of, you know, kind of wonder and joy about learning and respecting other places and spaces is a real gift they gave us. So a combination of, you know, moderation was very important in our family and discipline was really important. But at the end of the day, it was like, we don't care what you do as long as you're educated. 
you can grow up and be and do whatever you want. And so here, you know, I walked into the White House, 21, um, and had this incredible kind of really, uh, you know, sense of, you know, my, my parents, the identity they raised us as. Um, and maybe only a child of immigrants can, you know, really say this, and every time you say it, you get emotional, and I certainly do. But this notion, I mean, we were raised as Americans and Muslims, and, you know, faith was a very big, you know, part uh, of my childhood. But to travel around the world and to land at airports everywhere from Turkey to Japan to you name it, and to land and have that blue passport, I mean, that, you, you carried this great sense of pride at the country that you represented and, and that we represented. And so I brought all that experience to me um, when I walked into the White House uh, to work for Hillary. And when your family moved to Saudi Arabia, you're in a very different culture. Yeah. And you also emphasize that your parents constantly raised you with a sense that you had choices. Yes. That you were going to be able to be autonomous in your life. How were they able to reinforce that despite a culture that maybe didn't always reflect that. My mother tells the story that the first time my father says we're going to go to Saudi Arabia, and I was too, my mother's like, do they even have diapers in that country? Like, what are we doing? And I think about it. I mean, she landed, you know, this is pre the world of, you know, cell phones and, you know, obviously, you know, computers and internet. I mean, she was so isolated and so alone, and women could not drive, and she had to veil herself when she went outside. I mean, socially, it was a very, very challenging environment. She didn't speak the language. She taught herself Arabic um, to communicate with her Saudi students at the university. It was really difficult, and I think it's one of the reasons I did turn to writing and my imagination and and I created these worlds in my head, and my parents always told us you can do whatever you wanted, but it was, it was not easy. I mean, certainly it was not easy, and I really commend my mother and my father, but this, they made everything kind of this little adventure, and, um, and we got to leave a lot, too. I think, you know, people often say to me, look, how, you know, how did you you know, deal with that, not being able to drive and having to, you know, be so in such a conservative environment. I mean, I knew I had a way out. I mean, every, we traveled so much and I knew I was going to come home to the the United States in the summers and eventually move back here. I love that I was able to do both, you know, worlds. And one of the things I did love about growing up in Saudi Arabia was this notion, and we call it the ummah, which is basically translates to the community, the ever-present community. And what I loved about that kind of environment, it was that there was always a sense of support, and you felt like you were part of something much bigger than yourself. Yeah. Now, I'd love to jump back to how you got to the White House to begin with. Yeah. I know that you, you start off with an internship mm. in the Clinton administration, and you were required to work 15 hours a week. Oh, yes. And yeah. you did not. Yeah, I did not. Yeah. <laughs> how quickly did you know that you were the right person for this kind of job. Oh God, I never knew. I, I was not, I didn't know. All I knew is I loved it. I, you know, I went to university in Washington because I wanted to become Christian Amanpour. And I'd seen her, I had turned on the TV. CNN International had just arrived in 1992 during the first, you know, Operation Desert Storm, the first Gulf War, second Gulf War, depending on your perspective. But, um, and just saw this woman, um, you know, reporting from Baghdad and she just was, First of all, she looked like she came from my part of the world. She was so smart. She was so, you know, I, I saw her as sort of this, 
you know, truth seeker, and uh, I just admired her so much, and so I went to study journalism and then got this internship by accident um, in the White House. I had a friend who was interning for Mike McCurry, and she says, well, that's how you become Christian Amanpour. Go in- intern for Mike McCurry. I apply for the internship. I get it. Don't get a job in the press office. I get a job in the First Lady's policy office because of my background. And I remember calling my mother and saying, Mom, I don't know, how am I going to come become Christian Amanpour in the First Lady's policy office? And she said, well, you know, sometimes plan A doesn't work out, but maybe plan B will be, you know, pretty good. And, um, and she was right. And even though I was raised by a father who said a good life is a balanced life, I did not follow that advice. I just fell in love with the work. I just, I, 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 I'm very careful about how I use that word. Um, but I, I really became addicted to it. And I was never the best at anything. I mean, there's so many stories in the book of my constant failures. I, I mean, and the, and the attitude in this White House was basically like they tossed you into the deep end. And you, ha- you either sank or you swam. And, um, and all I knew, I was never the best. I mean, I was, I was not the smartest. I was not the prettiest. I was not the ist of anything. All I knew is that I was prepared to outwork everybody else. And, um, and I think that's one of the reasons, I mean, I really, I mean, I really did succeed. And there's a couple of, you know, crazy stories, um, in the book, like the, you know, very first speech I had to staff Hillary for, uh, and I was super nervous and I, you know, here she is the first lady, I'm this kid, no one's really told me what to do. And I like carry her speech and I put it on stage and, um, and, and she goes on stage and I'm at the back of the room because, you know, that's what you're supposed to do as a staff person, be invisible. And then she's sitting on stage, and all of a sudden she does this. And I thought, okay, this must be really bad. And I approach the stage, and she leans over, and she says, I don't have the right speech. And it was the first time that I felt that from, like, the tip of my toes, like, fire <laughs> up into my head thinking. But that, that's the moment when you know you either, like, completely fall apart or you say, which is what I said for the very first time that night, um, I said, I got it. I didn't have it, definitely didn't have it. But I ran out to the car, and um, sure enough, I opened the limousine, and there is, while I've been carrying my pristine copy of the speech, there is a speech, like, with all notes that she had edited the speech on the whole ride from the White House to the venue. And I run up, and by the time I get back to the stage, she's already at the podium. And, you know, she readjusts the pages, delivers the speech. I expected to be fired, by the way, when I, we walked off. Uh, the stage, and, the, and this tells you so much about Hillary, and, you know, I suspect there are people in the audience who've actually met her and spent some time with her, um, and uh, the very first thing she says to me is, you should ride in the limousine with me from now on, and it was her way of acknowledging that for this relationship to work, when you are that, the primary person that you needed to know everything that that, and that's, you know, how she solved it. And that was my first time in a limousine, and it's been um, 26 years. So it was all kinds of, you know, crazy adventures like that, but uh, I survived. (laughs) And I have to know, the Civics 101 in me has to know, when you were described as a uh, top advisor and aide to Mm. Hillary Clinton, what does that mean? What were you doing on a daily basis? What was your job? You know, and that's, I think, one of the challenges of having such an amorphous job. I mean, it's, it really became this, uh, you know, kind of air traffic controller. I mean, so much of it. You know, I always said that in 2008, if I was the manager of anything, I was the manager of sanity. Because so much of it on a daily basis, you're just juggling 100 balls. 
you know, what, what do you tell her when, how to take somebody through a day, how you deal with your hosts, how you figure out, you know, what the right thing to say is. So it's actually, it is very hard to describe um, the job that somebody like, you know, somebody like I did, but in part was, uh, you know, a sense of getting ultimately your message across every single day, trying to think long term, trying to, you know, think short term. So it's, it, it really is a little bit of everything, but it is, it's, it's hard to describe. I mean, for me, I wanted her to be able to go out there and just do the best job that she can. And then we're, you know, we're the feet beneath the duck, you know, just paddling to make sure that everything is, um, is smooth. And also for me, a big part of it, I tell uh, young people who work for me now and you're, who do what we call advance. I know everyone here knows what advance is. I had to describe what an advanced person is when I was in Saudi Arabia earlier, but, um, you know, I would say to my, I say to my staff now, when you go somewhere and you're negotiating for an event, it doesn't matter if you work for Hillary, if you work for Barack Obama, or if you work for Microsoft. If somebody has a bad experience, they're not going to say you, Jane Smith, are terrible. They're going to say Hillary Clinton sucks or Microsoft sucks. You, you know, so, so much of it is you really are an ambassador um, for what you represent, and that's at least... Um, how I was raised. And so you can see, even 25 years later, I still struggle to figure out uh, how to describe what the job is that I did. Yeah. And I wonder, having spent so much of your young adult years utterly devoted to this individual and this cause and this party, mm. how were you able to preserve yourself? Well, I, you know, I was, I lived a very, I didn't, I lived a very, for those of you, as you, if you read, end up reading the book, I mean, I, I, everything was work. I mean, I, I didn't have relationships. I didn't see my family. I didn't, I, I actually write about the fork in the road moment, um, that, uh, when 1997, I get a call, I'm at a family wedding in Manhattan, uh, this fairy tale wedding. My cousin was getting married. And I get a phone call from the White House, and, um, and my supervisor calls and says, do you want to go to Argentina to advance a trip uh, for the First Lady and the President? I was so green, I didn't even know what it meant. And, and it meant I would have to miss the wedding. I would leave in the middle of, you know, of, the, uh, of the wedding and uh, get on a plane and go to Buenos Aires. And I didn't even stop to think of it, and I, that's my fork in the road moment. I mean, I had one path right in front of me, you know, this notion, this future of family and kids and, you know, or this. And I didn't even know what was down this other road. No, no idea. All I knew is I wanted it. And, um, and so for me, I spent two decades of, of work being uh, my priority. And I, I really, um, and I, lo- I wouldn't change a thing, but um, having a rebalance. I mean, my diet was horrible. I mean, I literally had like 15 cups of coffee a day. I survived on snack bars. And then I'd go to dinner and I would have, you know, two orders of entrees and four desserts. You know, it was so, it was a really unhealthy, it was a really physically uh, unhealthy uh, existence. So I'm healthier now at 47 than I was at 37 for sure. (laughs) You're listening to an excerpt from my conversation with Homa Abedin for writers on a New England stage. There's plenty more coming after this quick break. But first, hello. You're listening to this podcast. Thank you. Seriously. Our job here at Civics 101 is to answer your questions, respond to your needs in this ever-complicated tangle of American government and politics, and we hope that you turn to us with the confidence that you'll actually get something substantial out of a listen. If you do, and you have the ability, I'm asking you to take a moment Go to civics101podcast.org and consider making a contribution to the show. This is public radio. 
It belongs to you, and it exists because of your donations. Got a little extra goodwill cash burning a hole in your pocket? We are a really great place to put that cash. I promise we will do good work with it. All right, that's it. And thanks for listening. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Hey there, everyone. Hey, folks. The whole Civics 101 team is here in D.C. for a week. That's why you hear cars and stuff whizzing by. Uh, We are in the district to talk to the people that we talk about on a daily basis. And a lot of those people work in the executive branch. That is the largest employer in the world. And a lot of those people work in the civil service where, after the assassination of James Garfield, it's a long story, they take an exam to make sure that they are the right person for their job. But if you run a business and you're not the federal government, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all, but to match instead with Indeed. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. 23 hires are made on Indeed every minute, and their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use it, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash civics. Just go to Indeed.com slash civics right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash civics. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire? You need Indeed. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. This is Civics 101. I'm Hannah McCarthy. This episode is an edited version of my conversation with longtime Hillary Clinton top aide and advisor Huma Abedin for writers on a New England stage at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. In part because this conversation happened in New Hampshire, Huma wanted to share the groundbreaking, or as she might tell it, glass ceiling shattering moment that presidential candidate Hillary Clinton won the New Hampshire primary. And no, I'm not talking about 2016. I'm talking about the first time around. I'm talking about 2008. It was one mile down the road where she made history. I, like, I actually see that, I mean, it's, it's just not honored more in, in some ways because that, so this is, I'm taking us back to the, for those of us who remember the 2008 presidential election, I certainly do, it's seared into my memory. Um, but when Hillary Clinton got in, it was a very, very crowded primary. Um, it, you know, she was the front runner, and it that you know the, she it came with all the advantages and the disadvantages uh, of her being the front runner. And um, you know, for, for those for those of you to remember, I mean, Joe Biden was running, and John Edwards was running. I mean, it was a it was a big. Um, 
And we knew, uh, we had research when she got in, into the campaign that it was going to be hard for a woman. It's one of the reasons why she didn't, you know, she, she did the whole I'm in it to win it and kind of running as the most qualified candidate. And uh, here was uh, then Senator Barack Obama, just just this extraordinary, um, inspiring, you know, brilliant uh, candidate. And so we're off to the races and uh, we worked really hard, invested a lot of time in Iowa and uh, and then she has this stunning loss. I mean, stunning uh, loss where she didn't come second, but she came third after John Edwards. So Barack Obama won, and John Edwards came second, and Hillary came third. And the entire time leading up to this very, very long, very, very brutal campaign schedule, like, we were reeling. And I, I recount the story in the book of, of, of how shocked... Uh, we all were. So immediately she does her concession speech, which she had not anticipated giving in, in Iowa, and we immediately get on a plane. And so we land in New Hampshire at 3 o'clock in the morning, you know, January 7th, at 2008, and we are basically preparing to lose. I mean, it's now like we, we just didn't know what was going to happen. And New Hampshire at that point, at that point, oh, my God, like everything went south. And so here we are about 11 points down in New Hampshire, and I remember slogging through that first day and um, uh, ending up at a rally, in, if I remember correctly, in Manchester. And Wes Clark, who had run for president himself, we show up at an event, and we're all kind of super depressed. And I said, Gen-, you know, and he comes off stage, and he's, like, really energized. And I said, General, how does it feel? And I, because that was my normal question, I was like, oh, why did I ask him? And he puts his hands on my shoulder, and he says, Huma, she is going to win here you can just feel it. And I'm looking at him like he's crazy. And, but he did, I mean, he had been in New Hampshire. He was doing, it, there was something that you, you just, you, you just can't, you can't explain it. But if you're in politics, you, you, you know, you can feel it. So gave us a, kind of a little, a, a little bump. But um, one of the reasons I share the story is that, you know, the day had been so long and we get up at five o'clock in the morning and we basically got this message from our campaign manager, which is you should be prepared to lose here. And, um, which nobody knew at the time. Obviously, publicly, we weren't saying this, obviously. And um, we end up at Cafe Espresso down the road in Portsmouth. And um, I was on the bus because we had just gotten this devastating news, and I got on the phone with a few of her campaign advisors and to figure out what are we going to do, like what, New Hampshire and South Carolina and Nevada and all this. And I get a knock on the door. Somebody comes running out and knocks on the bus door and says, we need you. She's crying. And I literally look at this advanced person, I mean, who is crying? What are you talking about? Because, I mean, Hillary, you cannot show emotion as a woman, oh, my God, in politics. And long story short, um, you know, a woman had, had got up at the cafe and, and said, you know, this must be so hard. How do you do it? Marianne. Marianne. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, she does. And I really, I mean, Marianne should get credit. I mean, it was that a moment that just human moment of how, that was the, people forget, the question was, how do you do it? This must be so hard. And it was, I mean, as cheesy as people might think this is, I mean, she basically said, I do it because I care. I mean, I know I have this enormously privileged life, and I, I, I see all these problems in our country, and I know I can fix it. And that was it. And that moment, that brief moment, that emotional moment, thank you, Marianne. And it really sh- changed, 
the tide. And so that, I mean, sure enough, fast forward to everyone knows history, here, um, she won. She won New Hampshire. And it was extraordinary. It was nobody, and she did that. And this state did that for her. And the very next morning, the first question she just get asked is, how do you explain your failures as opposed to how do you explain? She made history that night. By the way, no one has done it since. Nobody. No woman has done it since. And I, that's why like, I've, I have such a... And so we, both of us, have such deep... Um, I'm sorry I'm rambling about this, but such deep kind of gratitude and, and affection and, and love and, um, because it was done here. Yeah. Well, this, I think this is a great question because you actually you speak to how, how very much public service and being a civil servant felt like your calling and, and felt like yeah. the, the ultimate thing to devote yourself to. Um, a member of the audience asks, how do you envision the future of public service? Poll workers, teachers, voter registrars, et cetera. I think that it is all about passing that passion on to young people, which is why I'm happy to hear that you say that college students are, that you've spoken to are, are really motivated. Because, I, I mean, I even see it in New York. When I, I go vote in Manhattan and poll workers are always, a, you know, it, it's always older. Like how I want to make it young, exciting to young people to be part of, you know, take them along for the ride. It's, and show... You know, I write in the book about really getting to a very, very low, very, very bad place in my life. And, you know, post-2016, I, for some part, you know, took, felt very responsible for her loss. And, and this notion of, you know, really being prepared to just, you know, I, I had some very dark thoughts. And that, was two, that wasn't so long. It was in 2019. And I wrote the book. And, you know, the book, a lot of the writing the book was therapy. I tell all young people, by the way, to write their story. I mean, I think the act of writing is, and storytelling is so, so powerful. And frankly, being in politics. What is being in politics? It's telling a story, right? Ultimately, it's telling a story. And to now be this person in 2022 and to feel this much joy and satisfaction and sense of just possibility and... Um, and hope is, uh, I mean, like, if I can do that, like, I, I really do feel like it's, it's, it's possible for, for anybody. And so maybe politics isn't my future, but I, um, I do feel very hopeful about the future and about our country. Um, and I just think a big part of it is this, is just being in community together again and, and having conversations and not yelling and screaming at each other. I do. I have to ask you because I think so many young people really don't think politicians care at all about them, in part because they can't vote under a certain age, right? Their demographic maybe doesn't matter. Mm. Are they at all wrong? I think some people are in it just for the platform. Absolutely. I mean, I would, you know, um, but I think there are player. There are there are so many candidates. Forget you know running for president you know, state, local elections who are doing some incredible, incredible things, and I think they should all be honored, secretaries of state and gubernatorial candidates and House candidates. Um, there's a lot of good work and good people and well-intentioned uh, public servants out there who should be honored. Yeah, State and local government, everybody. So, yes, That's where it's at. It is. That 100%. is where the power is. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Oma Abedin, thank you yeah, no, so thank very you much. Thank you so much. Thank you all so much. Seriously. Thank you.
This has been an excerpt from my conversation with Huma Abedin, longtime Hillary Clinton aide and advisor, and author of the book Both and. This conversation was recorded live before an audience at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, for writers on a New England stage, in partnership with New Hampshire Public Radio. A longer version of this conversation will be available at nhpr.org. A big thank you to everyone who helped put that show together, the musical executive director, Tina Sautel, New Hampshire Public Radio president and CEO, Jim Schachter, New Hampshire Public Radio producer, Sarah Plord, the music hall production manager, Jana Morris, the music hall live sound and recording engineer, Ian Martin, musical director and band, Bob Lord and Dreadnought, and the music hall literary producer, Brittany Wasson. This episode was produced by me, Hannah McCarthy. Nick Capodice is my co-host. Christina Phillips is our executive producer. Jackie Fulton is our producer. And Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 